Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Carissa Nipchi. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. In the past few months, there have been a number of developments in Germany. Uh, The Christian Democratic Union recently held leadership elections. And then if we look towards September, there will be federal elections in Germany. And as you all know, on this side of the Atlantic, we also have new leadership. So today we have the great privilege of sitting down with Constanze Schultzenmuller and Sam Denny to discuss what all of this means for German-US relations. For those listeners who don't know Constanze and Sam, um, Constanze is an expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign and security policy and strategy. She is the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations and the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings. She has previously served as the Kissinger Chair on Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress, the inaugural Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at Brookings, a Senior Transatlantic Fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and an editor for the political section of the German weekly Die Zeit. Sam Denny is a senior research assistant in the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings. He was previously the 2019 Europe Fellow for Young Professionals in Foreign Policy and has interned for the Europe Practice at the Albright Stonebridge Group and for the European Union Affairs Unit at the State Chancellery of North Rhine-Westphalia in Dusseldorf, Germany. So thanks to both of you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Let's get started with one of the most recent developments in German-U.S. relations and then specifically in Germany. Um, The Christian Democratic Union recently held their leadership elections and Armin Laschet prevailed over the other candidates. So what can we expect from his leadership of the CDU? Is this Merkel 2.0? So I'll go ahead and start with that question. This is an interesting and kind of somewhat debated topic, um, even between Constanza and me. Um, and so I think for a lot of a lot of intensive purposes, Laschet does represent sort of a continuation of Merkel's, of course, in German politics, kind of broadly seen. Um, he's very much seen as a man of the middle, so to say. Um, he's kind of a unity candidate within the CDU. Um, and especially compared to his challenger in the CDU, Leadership election, Friedrich Mertz, who's this ex-businessman, lawyer, former BlackRock CEO or BlackRock executive, excuse me. Um, he represented a continuation of kind of the course that Merkel had charted of the past 16 or so years. Um, what makes this a little bit complicated in terms of his leadership of the party is that he was never exactly popular among the CDU base. And so, I mean, if you look back to polling taken before the leadership election on the 16th, um, he only kind of received around 25% of the support of the CDU voters. And this actually translated into um, the, the, the result you saw in the second round of the leadership election, which he actually beat Friedrich Mertz by a very narrow margin, 52 to 48. And so, Yes, you're right. While Laschet is now the CDU uh, chief, there is still this kind of open divide within the party between the kind of conservative, more liberal wings um, that needs to be sorted out in the next few months. And an interesting question going forward that's kind of hotly debated on Germany is whether or not he will actually be the chancellor candidate for the CDU. There's kind of a shadow kind of debate going on with Laschet and um, a kind of a, a competitor, Marcus Zoda, who's the minister president of North Rhine-Westphalia, or excuse me, the minister president of Bavaria, kind of moved in northward accidentally, 
um, who has not yet announced a, a candidacy, but has through his kind of um, statements and postings been hinting at it. Um, I'll, I'll turn it over to Constanza there. Um, I, I think that just, Sam just gave a, a very precise uh, analysis of, of what Lashet stands for. I would just add, and, and Sam knows this, I, I once wrote a column for the FT last year about how I went to law school in Bonn um, at around the same time as all of the three men who were vying for the succession to Merkel, Friedrich Merz, Armin Laschet, and Norbert Röttgen. And um, to me, Laschet is, um, is different from Merkel in the sense that Merkel, for all her sort of calculated blandness, um, really has revolutionized German politics and, and also brutally modernized the CDU. Um, whereas Laschet strikes me as something of a throwback to pre-unification West German politics, in that he is very deeply rooted in uh, regional, some Germans would say tribal politics of, of West Germany. Um, the state that he governs, North Rhine-Westphalia, is one of the largest in Germany. Um, and the traditional politics there um, are very sort of um, based on your having worked your way up the ladder, knowing people in networks. And um, I think that he might, I, I think that he might not quite be as up to date on certain issues as Merkel, as Merkel and, or, for, or his other challenger, Norbert Rutkin was or is. Well, thank you. I, the, both uh, both of those interventions, I uh, there, there's so much to, to to drill down on, and I really I really appreciate the uh, uh, the deep knowledge that's on this podcast. I salute that, and I like to go back, Constanza, to something you said that I found really interesting in talking about the pre-unification uh, politics of West Germany. That's so interesting. I I, I do remember those days a bit. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to, to hear that there could be a throwback given so much time that's gone by since those days. And so my question is, in terms of the new generation of German voters, uh, the next gen, if you will, uh, coming to the fore, um, is that possible these days to actually be a candidate uh, and to be in politics and to be a throwback? Uh, will this new generation sit for that? Is that something that uh, if someone tries to be a throwback or harkens to those days, um, th that person can't expect to have a lot of next-gen votes. Um, I, I think that's a very valid question. And I think that the... Yeah, Germany is a culture that, that values a certain continuity and um, politicians who uh, work hard at consensus building. And remember that we have an aging demographic. Right. So so while, yes, I mean, all of us on this, on this podcast would agree that it's necessary to appeal to a younger incoming demographic, but there's also an older demographic that insists on being heard. And that for whom these, these candidates, certainly Mertz and, and Laschet were very much theirs. And, um, I think what I'm a little bit concerned about is, is the self-awareness of both the older candidates, Merz, who's in, early, in his early 60s, Laschet, who's in his late 50s, 
Um, and Rutkin isn't that much younger. He's in his early 50s. Um, sorry, Laschet is in his late 50s. Um, and I, it seems to me that, that Laschet hasn't struck me as being particularly aware of the extraordinary pressures and constraints that Germany's incoming voter generation sees on Europe and on Germany. Because I found his framing, particularly in foreign and security policy, to be quite traditionalist and, and somewhat, again, lacking in awareness of what the issues are that are roiling German debate. That's interesting. Yeah, thank you. And one point here that might be worth drawing out a little bit, it's kind of an open question, but in terms of Laschet's ability to kind of appeal to a younger generation, he did um, attempt to bring in Rutkin into the CDU leadership. And Rutkin had this campaign that was much more internet friendly. It was kind of memefied in a way and had a lot of support uh, among younger kind of CDU voters. And he's also a bit more um, forward thinking or kind of friendly towards defining a new conservatism for the 21st century, whereas Laschet is kind of more kind of a Weiterzo kind of candidate um, compared to him. And so how he uses Rutkin in terms of his foreign policy or in terms of kind of the future of conservatism is something to also consider. I want to pick up on this a little bit and ask first about some of the domestic issues that will drive the debate that will be key issues in the elections in September. And then I do want to turn to some of these foreign policy debates that are roiling in um, German politics and in German-U.S. relations. So I guess to start us off on more of the domestic front, what do you anticipate will be the key issues in the elections in September? Sam? Sure. Um, I mean, for me, the issue that stands out of all is, is how um, the pandemic is handled, how COVID-19 is handled, how the recovery is processed, how vaccines are rolled out over the next few months. Um, you have to also remember that this campaign is not just the the confederal election in September. It's also a series of regional elections that take place throughout throughout the year, um, beginning actually in March. And so you'll see kind of the candidates kind of testing out different approaches throughout these regional elections, and how the regional elections run will actually have an impact on what the potential final kind of result will be in September. And so looking kind of looking down into this you how the pandemic plays out in these regional elections will then largely influence um, what the end result is and this is also not exactly to Laschet's strength as well given that kind of the course of the last year in 2020 there was a shadow contest for the future of the CDU between Laschet on the one hand and then Marcus Zuda who I mentioned before and in terms of how they handled the pandemic with Laschet being on the side of more of um, and kind of a lighter lockdown or kind of an easier approach to the pandemic, hoping to reopen schools and other businesses sooner, whereas Zuda was very much a, took a hard line in reacting to the COVID crisis and actually famously instituted a situation, an emergency um, situation in Bavaria before even the federal government did. Um, so that's something to kind of be aware of too. And, both how the campaign runs, but also how uh, Lashet's fortunes change throughout the next, um, I guess, seven months or so. Let me add on to that, if I may. Um, 
Zoda has been issuing what, what I would call um, vigorous non-denials uh, on the question of, of whether he's willing to run. And I think what he is, um, it is not cynical to assume that he is waiting for the March regional elections um, in two of Germany's states to see what, what that does to Laschet's standing. And if there is, if the CDU tax in those elections, which is a non-negligible possibility, then the new leader of the CDU, Laschet, will be blamed. And that provides a political opening for Zuda to step in without having had to you know, pay a price. It's that simple. What that then means, though, is that since the federal elections have, are on September 26, is that we're going, we're going to have a very, very short election campaign in the middle of the end of the second wave, possibly the beginning of the third wave of a pandemic, when the sort of larger economic and social consequences of the pandemic are beginning to show themselves. And um, what we haven't discussed yet is, is you know, what role the AFD could play in all this. And that's something that we, um, that I think is, is also a, uh, a factor to be, to be discussed. Well, you raised the AFD, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in on that and 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 but expand it a bit. Not just the AFD, which is so interesting to watch how that goes up and down, and to make some incomplete comparisons with some U.S. politics. But but I will, we won't have to do that now. But 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 talk about the AFD and how it might play, but also the other parties as well. If you know, our listeners might need a little bit of a of an uh, re refresh on what the politics looks like now with the number with the parties out there, and uh, and and give us a little bit on the AFD as well. The polling situation, I mean, is is puts the CDU still in the lead potentially on the back of a, a boost in confidence from Merkel's leadership, followed by the Greens, the SPD, um, the AFD, the FDP, which is the Free Democrats kind of liberals, and then the Left Party, which is kind of the ex-communists. Um, from running from the CDU at 34 to the left party at six. Um, and so the AFD over the past year or so has really kind of started to, to kind of stagnate in the polls. I mean, and they were never very strong throughout Germany as a whole. Um, in the federal elections in 2017, they scored around 12.6%, 13% of the vote. Um, but now they've kind of stagnated to around 10% or so in recent polling. And they really haven't been able to get a hold of how they've approached the, the pandemic. I mean, at first they were kind of somewhat in favor or, of the hard measures taken by Germany, you know, closing borders. This matches with, with AFD and populist rhetoric, right? But they've since tried to position themselves as very anti-coronavirus um, lockdown measures, you know, trying to be a party of civil rights, civil freedoms in Germany. Um, and so now over the past kind of few months, we've seen a, a, a marked um, radicalization in the party where they have begun comparing Germany's leadership, Germany's kind of coronavirus response to a dictatorship, um, openly using this. And you have comments from AFD parliamentarians saying, you know, this reminds them of certain worrisome events in, the, in Germany's, Germany's past. And now, I mean, the biggest problem for the party is that they may be put under observation by Germany's domestic intelligence, which is a whole nother chapter, 
that we can get into in a minute if you like. Um, but kind of looking forward to what role they might play. Um, their main goal is to corrupt Germany's kind of centrist parties um, to try to undermine the CDU and to play a spoiler in kind of larger parliamentary politics um, since they really have no chance of achieving power on a national level. It's on the local levels that they potentially could, you know, hope to become a lead party. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, the, the, the AFD's strategy really has been to sort of crawl into the Conservative Party of Angela Merkel and, and eat it up from the inside out, which arguably is what happened with the hard right, the UKIP, a party of Nigel Farage, in, uh, that co-opted the Tories in the UK. Right. right. And one could make an argument that similar things are happening in the GOP right now. Right. So far, the CDU has resisted this um, on the national level, although um, it, I, it, it's worth noting here that Merkel's chosen successor, Annegret Kamkarenbo, the current defense minister, stumbled over the, an attempt by the AFD in one of the Eastern Länder in Thuringia um, to form a coalition with, with the liberals, which um, she found powerless to prevent. And that brings us to, to a point that I think I need to add to Sam's excellent um, analysis, which is that the, the AFD still polls much higher than 10% in the five Eastern states. Mm -hmm. And there, the, the, the conservative establishment, the CDU base and the CDU um, policymakers are much more amenable to cooperation with the AFD at the state and local level Although they have been told firmly by, by, the, by the national party leadership that this is an absolute taboo. And that's still a vulnerability going forward into this, into this election period, which keep in mind is, is this election will be the end of an era for Germany. Merkel is almost the longest running chancellor in German post-war history. And if coalition building takes as long as it did last time in 2017, when it took five months, she will be the longest running, she'll be the head of a caretaker government and she will certainly be the longest running chancellor. So this really is the, the end of an era for Germany. And the, the other thing that I think we, we ought to say is that the AFD is deservedly under, uh, you know, there's, there's deservedly a debate as to whether the AFD ought to be put under surveillance because it has become more disciplined and more radical. The, the whatever was, you know, quote unquote moderate about the AFD has been shunted to the side. And what's in power now in the leadership, both regionally and at the national level is absolutely radicalized, a hard right xenophobic um, ethno-nationalist party with, uh, with a clear intention of, of subverting Germany's um, representative democratic order. And that's, that's another point that I think is, is important for our listeners to, to understand, is that the, 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 the activities where the AFD is, is the most disciplined and strategic is not its cooperation with, uh, say, neo-Nazi movements and street demonstrations. Um, it's where it undermines the institutions of representative democracy with court cases that are designed to block up the courts or to wage culture war. 
its attempts to block up um, executive agencies with um, the help of parliamentary inquiries that then by law need to be answered by the executive agencies, basically just gumming up the works because entire departments are spent, you know, working down catalogs of questions sent them by the parliamentary factions of the AFD. And, um, and finally, the AFD using uh, legislative sessions for, for grandstanding um, speeches that they then publish on their YouTube and other social media channels um, to keep their base energized. Um, and all, all of this is, is very much coordinated. It's very strategic. They have publishing houses. Um, they are, they're, they're, they're still very present on social media. And I think they are a force not to be underestimated. And one shouldn't, one shouldn't think just because they've had, you know, no, no ideas in the pandemic or polling at 10% nationally that they're not a force to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Wow, I, I have to say, I, I, my, I had an earlier follow-up question dealing with German polling, but I think, Constanza, <laughs> what you just laid out, I kept thinking about our situation here in the US uh, with the splintering of the Republican Party and this extremist wing. And I know we need to talk about the foreign policy aspects as Carissa laid out, that's why we're here. But, but let me just ask you one more question along, along those lines. All of this, all these tactics that the AFD is using, all of this um, obstruction and this uh, concern that, 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 that you expressed and that we all feel about the, the rise of the AFD and what the AFD is doing, has that provoked a, res a response in Germany among voters, among uh, you know, others in Germany to push back on that, to combat that? In other words, we're faced with that in the United States now as the Republican Party is trying to figure out how do they push extremists out? Do they have to start their own new conservative party to try to, you know, Republicans trying to free themselves from that extremist wing? So we're, all of us here in the U.S., as you know, and politically, we're trying to figure out how do you deal with this extremism? Is that something similar in Germany now, too, where among the people, among politicians, they're saying we have this is this obstruction and the and the and the stopping up of the court systems and the undermining of the institutions. We have to push that back to protect our our form of government. Is is that happening in Germany or is there, there the same kind of uh, hand wringing that you see in the U.S. trying to figure out what do you do? Sam, what do you think? Um, I mean, so I have indeed seen, I mean, there is a growing hostility in German society writ large to the AFD, that German society is becoming more AFD hostile, um, more, um, or rather I said, less open to debate for the sake of just debate. If, if, the, if the kind of the purpose of your debate partner is to, or the purpose of the, the other kind of party is to simply undermine that those discussions are no longer worthwhile. Um, so kind of a shifting of the way in which uh, politics deals with these, these kind of right-wing extremists. Um, but the other hand is that this is very much a kind of a question of two different um, approaches to the AFD in Germany. And so here's where you kind of look at the very different levels of support that the AFD has in both the West and the East. And so to be clear, the AFD is an entire Germany problem. They have supporters in all of Germany, but you can't deny that they are much stronger in the East. I mean, approaching kind of the middle 20% polling kind of levels there. 
And so from that perspective, they, they risk kind of becoming what's called a Volkspartei, which is kind of a big tent party in the East and supplanting the CDU or the left party, which were traditionally kind of these bastions of support. So from that perspective, you kind of, as Germany moves forward with uh, how it deals with the AFD, it's undermining of institutions, there is a risk of a bit of splintering there along geographic lines. As you have a party that openly speaks to grievances held by um, East Germans to the legacy of kind of reunification, grievances that are in some cases rightly held, um, and then weaponizes those to undermine German democracy. Um, and so that's kind of how, that's also another, another hurdle in how Germany deals with the AFD. I would just add that um, a lot of the German national AFD leadership is West German. Mm -hmm. Um, and that it does have a significant following in Western German states, um, and that not all of those followers have economic grievances. In fact, they're kind of like the lady, you know, who who rented a, the the real estate developer who rented a private jet to fly to the the January sixth capital um, uh, capital insurrection. Right. Um, in other words. It's, it's not all of this is about economic grievances, although those are real. There are genuine structural economic issues in Eastern Germany. But part of this is, part of this is about identity questions and about culture wars and about Germany's changing demographics. And there, I mean, Sam is, Sam is right that there have been um, massive demonstrations against the AFD in Germany, counter demonstrations, but Germany has oddly also developed the most significant QAnon following in Europe. Um, and, and that has latched onto the AFD and vice versa. And let's also not forget that the, um, that QAnon and, and AFD elements, I think, tried to storm the federal legislature, the Bundestag, Right. Uh, uh, in uh, last fall, and were prevented by by three policemen on this on the steps of the Bundestag. It was also a much much smaller number uh, than than the than the more than ten thousand that that mobbed the capital in January. But but a another an AFD member of the Bundestag gave QAnon folks visitors passes shortly thereafter, who thereby legally entered the 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 office buildings of the Bundestag and started harassing. Um, members and uh, of established parties and and filming them while they were doing this. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, no, there's uh, there's been quite a lot going on, but but the you know it used to be it used to be that in the early days when the AfD joined uh, the Bundestag as the largest opposition party, as like Sam said, at twelve point six percent, that the talk shows the political talk shows felt obligated to always invite an AfD member to whatever conversation there was. And very often these AFD members would be belligerent, hostile, unconstructive, and it's gotten to the point where they're no longer invited because there is a sense that they're just there to break things up. Yeah. And, and it's, it's unproductive for, for a civilized conversation. But, um, and to the degree that the AFD has radicalized the way it has, um, I think that, that's, that it's legitimate to do that um, I'm I'm less concerned about freedom of speech um, uh, considerations than I would, or parity considerations than I would otherwise be. Yeah. 
I think we could, we should have a whole nother podcast just on the AFD because this has all been fascinating. And I think especially, you know, as someone who looks at democracy and disruptors, this is a really different model, kind of um, gumming everything up in the bureaucratic procedure. So this is all very fascinating. And I definitely think um, you guys will come back to talk with us about the AFD. But I do want to transition and shift gears just a little bit to some of the foreign policy um, and security policy considerations. Um, you know, to start us off on this um, line of thinking, let's start with China, I think. So um, you know, recently at Davos, um, Chancellor Merkel rejected calls for Europe to push, to pick a side in a competition between the U.S. and China. Um, Germany is viewed, um, especially in the United States, as a driving engine behind the comprehensive agreement on investment. Um, will Germany continue to chart this course or try to chart its own course on China? Where are some of the candidates um, for you know, the chancellor, as we know them now, how are they looking on this issue? Sort of what what's the future of China policy in Germany? Let me try and take a stab in that. And maybe, Sam, then you can you can chime in. Um, I think that um, the. There is there has been a notable contrast between um, German senior policymakers, very sort of full throated embrace of the Biden administration and and its foreign policy actions in in recent weeks. Um, And that has a lot to do with China, but not only with China. So. Let's recall that when it became clear that the election was going to be called for for Joe Biden, um, the EU Commission issued a transatlantic paper with a lot of very constructive, pragmatic um, suggestions for cooperation that was clearly not written on the spur of the moment. It was very thought out. And I think the the Biden team received that with real respect. And uh, the most national governance uh, governments in Europe followed suit, and the Germans in the Germans you had the president, the chancellor, the foreign minister, and the defense minister. I think you know had three speeches and papers uh, with suggestions for things to do. So there was a sense, you know, we've all been thinking about this. Let's do stuff. And I will add that that I have been part of two think tank efforts. One um, between the Kennedy School and uh, the German Council on Foreign Relations called Stronger Together, and the and then a, a paper published by GMF Berlin and the Brill Foundation called More, More Ambition, Please, which was more focused on what Germans ought to do and was an attempt to reconcile conservative and green positions. Um, and so there was a huge amount of activity throughout the summer and into, into the uh, the, the end of the year to, to offer ways in which we could work together. And then on the other hand, you have the German EU presidency, which ended at the end of 2020, pushing through um, very forcefully this Chinese investment agreement with Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the Germans continu- continuing to insist that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline you know, ought to be uh, ought to be built and is, you know, um, finding some sort of very odd um, arguments for, for, for saying why it's, why it's not problematic in any way. Um, 
And finally, Armin Laschet, um, as soon as he was voted uh, voted into position as the head of the CDU and presumptive chancellor candidate, um, of course, every single English language newspaper um, started burrowing into anything he had ever said on foreign and security policy and found some things that, that were, you know, uh, seemed as though they came from another time. Um, he had clearly not spent much time updating his talking points. And so there's a contrast between, you know, the full-throated embrace of the Biden administration and 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 these things. And I, and I think that um, while I think much of this is genuinely unfortunate, I mean, I've, I've written about this, I've, you know, I'm on record at saying that these things are unhelpful. I also think that they are I think this comes from a really deep-rooted German desire to somehow to to while being firmly rooted in Europe and and the Atlantic Alliance, which I think these people all firmly believe of themselves, to not alienate the Russians with whom they share a continent and China, which is Germany's most important export market, and and there is a. I think a, a reluctance to use the very real economic leverage that the EU and, and that Germany has to um, show up, um, you know, to, to demarcate red lines with regard to these authoritarian great powers. I think that that's a mistake. Um, and I think it's a mistake because both the Chinese and the Russians have been extremely active uh, within Europe and within Germany um, to exercise influence on European and German politics. Which I think, I frankly, I think some of uh, German politics is in denial about. Not all of it, but but some some people are, and so I think that I I am not suggesting you know that that being uh, an incarnation of the EU or the alliance sort of that that we need to. You know there there are things that we can legitimately disagree with each other about within Europe and within the alliance, but I think we need to take a clearer stance with regard to what we are going to let the Chinese and the Russians do or not do in Europe. And that we haven't figured out yet. Yeah. Sam, I, mean, I don't know if you want to add anything. No, a couple of points. I mean, that was really comprehensive, but I just maybe a little bit of color on, on Merkel's decision um, to push through the CAI. I mean, one thing that um, you all might remember, but in case not, I mean, she, Merkel was very much in tune with German public opinion. There was a story from maybe a year ago or so more, where it revealed that the, the chancellery would commission multiple public opinion polls per week to help her guide decisions. This has been a criticism of Merkel as well, kind of making her decisions based on solely public opinion. Um, but at the same time, her course somewhat follows what Germans think as well. And so there was this ECFR polling that was released, um, I think, on inauguration day or just before, which is a great present for the new Biden administration, that said that you know a majority, a wide majority of Germans um, actually wanted Germany to remain neutral between the US and China and to remain neutral between the US and Russia. Um, and on top of that, that a bare majority of Germans, like 53% or something like that, actually didn't trust the US anymore after the past four years of the Trump administration. And so I think while there is immense pressure on the German government, um, on Merkel to, to change course um, and adopt kind of a more hawkish line on China, there's, there's kind of uphill sledding 
with this as well in terms of the German public opinion, and especially with regards to kind of the results and the damage of the past four years. We should just say ECFR is short as the acronym for the European Council on Foreign Relations. Yes. <laughs> I'm turning to Russia. I'm glad that you guys brought that up. Um, you know, one question I have here are what options do the Europeans have? I mean, we have the European Magnitsky Act. Um, sort of beyond that, what should the Europeans be doing in terms of Russia policy? How does Germany factor into those decisions about the next steps? And then um, kind of pulling on another thread that you guys brought up, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, especially if we're looking at Nord Stream 2 and that question that's popped up in the last weeks, how do business interests factor into all of this as well? Okay, let me let me perhaps take a stab in that and, that, and then that Sam add on. Um, on Nord Stream 2, um, you know, I've already said, I think that Nord Stream 2 is one of the, one of the biggest policy mistakes that the Merkel government made. Um, it's... I think it started out in life as a sop to as a sop to German business, at a time when when Germany was was uh, actually trying to, uh, you know, really keep together a European sanctions consensus, on our consensus on sanctions against Russia after the annexation of Crimea, and the beginning of proxy warfare by the Russians in eastern in eastern Ukraine, um, but the the truth is that right now there is a huge, there is a, I don't think there is any German publication uh, that hasn't expressed um, really stringent criticism of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. There is not a day that goes by that one of the major newspapers doesn't say this is a huge mistake. And I think there are significant groups, even within Merkel's own party, that agree. I think the one thing I would add on is, again, this kind of willingness in German politics or in Germany to kind of chart its own path and then justify it any way they can. And so the, the example I would raise is actually is this, this so-called climate foundation that's been created in uh, Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is a, a kind of a region in Germany on the north kind of Baltic coast which is where Nord Stream 2 is actually kind of being built. Um, so ostensibly the government there has created a, a, a foundation in order to support um, green energy. And, but at the same time, this foundation will be, it's one of its main funders is actually Gazprom. And so it's seen by observers as a way in which to, to kind of skirt US sanctions perhaps by allowing kind of funding to go from the foundation to create or to purchase construction equipment for the pipeline. And so this has all been kind of part and parcel of Germany's debate on renewable energy. And so this is actually filters back to something that Laschet himself has said where, you know, he fits Nord Stream 2 into a 50 year or so kind of history of Germany buying energy from Russia and then justifying further with saying, well, we need to transition from dirtier energy sources, and thus we need natural gas because it's slightly cleaner um, when burned. And so that's why we actually need this um, kind of new pipeline in order to support this transition away from fossil fuels, even though, I mean, so this is the talking points that they'll use. Um, even though there is some added, I mean, 
it's not to say that natural gas isn't cleaner necessarily. It's kind of, there was one comparison to this as, as vegetarians kind of constructing a slaughterhouse in order to kind of support uh, vegetarianism. So, <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, if, if I might add something on the on the larger question, I, I think you know I agree completely with 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 Sam that Nord Stream Two is um, is a project that is I think economically uh, economically flawed and politically damaging, but it is short-sighted to reduce the, the problem of Germany's relations with Russia and Europe's relations with Russia to this one pipeline. Mm -hmm. And in reality, what we are looking at here is the, I think the beginnings of the end of, of Putinism in Russia, in many ways. We're seeing we're seeing Putin for the first time being challenged for his extraordinary corruption and the the avarice and corruption of the of of the uh, the, the people around Putin, his enablers and his henchmen, and a challenger in the form of Alexei Navalny, who certainly has problems of his own, but has been astoundingly successful. In our in turning, in finding proofs of this corruption, and turning this into videos, the famous palace video, um, that find a, a a viewership in the in the tens of millions, and that have caused Russians of all ages and in all areas of Russia and all regions to go on the street to protest this, um, even at the risks of brutal crackdowns by the police. I mean, we've seen more than 100,000 Russians go on the streets and arrests in the, in, in, in the thousands. And I think what that signals is the beginning of the end for the social contract between the Putin regime and ordinary Russians, which essentially meant you accept constraints upon your, um, uh, upon your political freedoms for an increase in your economic and, 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 and social um, options and that's no longer working with a, a an, an oil and gas price that has declined and a fossil fuel rent income to the Russian government that is also in decline. And so the question that Europe and Germany needs to ask themselves is what happens? What kind of power transition is imaginable at the end whenever Putinism comes to an end? Is it possible to, for that power transition to be to a more decent and more democratic form of governance? And is there anything that we can do to support that? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge question. And yeah. because we share a continent with Russia, unlike America, it's not a question that we can just evade. It's literally yeah. sitting in the same geographic space as us. And it has consequences. One of the things that, that people, I think, in America might forget is that after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, end, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, more than 300,000 people emigrated from Russia to Germany alone. 100,000 Soviet Jews and, and 200,000 so-called ethnic Germans. That was the, the biggest 
population movement after the refugees of the of the Yugoslav wars, many of whom went home after the end after the Dayton Peace Accords. And so the question the question for for Europe and for Germans in particular is not just you know can there be a a managed power transition to something that is better for for Russians but also will there be a power transition that leads to population movements outside of Russia and and that's a fairly big deal and so the 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 thing that that I suggested in a, in a recent column was that we yes we do need, do need to look at the application of the European Magnitsky Act, which came into, into power in last December, um, to uh, apply to the enablers and the henchmen of the Putin regime for human rights violations. We also need, I think, in the long term, to make it clear to Russian civil society that we are on their side without wishing to impose our ideas on them. In other words, to exercise real solidarity and empathy by listening to them and right. finding out what they want for themselves, which may not be what we would think is desirable. And that's different from the line that, that Western governments took in the 90s and aughts. And then finally, I think that we also need to look at um, you know, the larger issue of, of what all that means for, for European security. And, and not least, we need to ask ourselves what the Russian regime, the Putin regime, the Kremlin have been doing within Europe with the help of corruption, disinformation and propaganda yeah. that, in my view, we haven't done enough to tackle. Constanza, Sam, this was an incredibly comprehensive discussion of the issues in U.S.-German relations, and especially zooming in on the German domestic politics will, I think, be extremely useful for our listeners as they're thinking to September and also all of these regional elections beginning in March. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you from me as well. I, I think uh, we could have another podcast just on what Constanza said about the future of Russia, that, that impact on Germany, the impact on Europe, and the impact on the transatlantic community. I think this is an open uh, about three or four podcasts. So we look forward to <laughs> it would be a pleasure. It's always wonderful to talk to you guys. And I'm particularly pleased that Sam and I could do this together. This is great. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs>